Graceful, huh? So it sort of goes without saying people uh, need hope, right? Look around the world. Look at our own, our own life. Without hope, we sort of crash, you know, and whatever it is, whatever we're working on, whatever we're thinking about, whatever matters to us, when hope starts to flag, it, it crashes. It's very, very difficult to be motivated to see anything happen in your life once hope begins to crash. Then fear, hiding, scheming, any number of other things, apathy starts to take front and center. And when that happens, the thing that, things that matter to us begin to fall apart. To be really blunt, we've talked about us having hope. So I'm done with you. We've talked about you having hope. What I want to move forward is, what does that have to do with the people around us? There is a... Well, let me ask you this. What is it about other people that brings hope to us? We often think it's uh, what brings hope is something rather Im impressive and beyond us, but it's normally not so. You know, for example, when I think about what inspires me in my life, uh, if, if I wanted to dunk a basketball, which I don't, let's imagine that mattered deeply to me. I want to dunk a basketball. I would not be inspired to dunk a basketball by a seven-foot crazy athletic individual because them showing it would only make me think I wish I were taller or could jump higher. What might inspire me is a 52-year-old man who was on crutches who was able to dunk a basketball. Now, that would be inspiring. It also wouldn't happen. What inspires us is the ordinary, somebody who's very ordinary doing what we long to do and doing it successfully. Where we find hope in our lives is when we believe, because we see it in the life of somebody else, that what we long to have done can happen. It's not Superman. It's not beyond us. Normal people see this happen in their life. I'm going to sit down. I teach public speaking, which most of you know. And I'm, I'm, a, I'm a good teacher of public speaking. But one of the reasons I'm a good teacher of public speaking is because of all of my various weaknesses. You see, when I walk in the first day of class, what I tell the students is, I know you're terrified of public speaking. You know, it's the number one fear of Americans right after death. I know you're terrified. And it uh, was a terrifying experience for me, too. I hated public speaking, avoided it all my life, would have done almost anything other than that. And yet, I can do it. I actually love to do it. And what often happens by the end of the semester, they say things which I try not to take personally, like this. Wow, if he can do it, then I can too. <laughs> See, they get hope from the fact that I'm an ordinary guy. Nothing, nothing special about me. I, I trip over my words sometimes. I get afraid. I, nothing special. I'm just an ordinary guy, and somehow I'm able to stand up in front of people or sit down in front of people and speak. Hope comes when things are believable. When we look at somebody else's life and say, okay, I see it happen there, so maybe it can happen for me too. Well, you know, in my opinion, one of the biggest turns from modernity to post-modernity was the change of this question. What used to matter was what is true. What now matters is what is real. In other words, what is true is something that's on a, a bulletin board that I'm supposed to believe that may or may not have anything to do with my life. Truth like that feels irrelevant and distant. S so what if it's true? If it's not real, 
if, if I can't experience it, if it doesn't have some connection in my life, what does it matter if it's true? It might be true, but it's irrelevant. Is it real? People like you and I want to see hope that's real, livable, achievable for ordinary people. In the passage today, we're going to look at Paul, who was by... In, he was, a, he was a guy, relatively ordinary guy, who talks to us about the power of hope that we bring to other people's lives. And I'm going to read that passage to you. It's in Colossians. Again, in this series, we're, we're, in the, we're going through the book, the letter to Colossians, four chapters worth, and we're dealing that final section of it, finishing well. And I'm going to read verses 24 through 29 of chapter 1. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I fill up in my physical body for the sake of his body, the church. What is lacking in the sufferings of Christ? I became a servant of the church according to the stewardship from God given to me for you in order to complete the word of God. That is, the mystery that has been kept hidden from ages and generations but has now been revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known to them the glorious riches of his mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him by instructing and teaching all people with all wisdom so that we may present every person mature in Christ. Toward this goal, I also labor, struggling according to his power that powerfully works within me. All right, what we're going to do today is we're going to actually just walk through that passage, break it down just a little bit of a time, because a little bit of time, because I want it to lead us to a place of, of real challenge and, and, I hope, encouragement for each one of us. Okay, verse 24. Paul says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, and now that is... And not a phrase that often comes out of my mouth, our mouth, but that's what he says. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. And I fill up in my physical body for the sake of his body, the church, what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Now, even though in English those two words, suffering, are exactly the same, they're completely different words and they have a different sense to them. The first one, Paul's, has the sense of in- internal passion. Uh, my, my suffering is a sense of, of, of a burden that I feel toward doing something. It, it, yes, it is an affliction, but it's more of an internal passion. And it, it's similar to the word we get um, pathos, we get passion from. Um, the word used of Christ is a word that originally, it, it, uh, literally it means to be pressed upon. It, you know, it's, it, it's like if, if something was laid on top of something and pressed upon it, it would be that word. It's pressed upon it. And so it refers to external afflictions that were placed on top of Christ. What Paul says is his passion, his suffering, his taking one for the team for the sake of other people, in some way completes the affliction, the suffering that Christ, uh, that Christ did. Now, if you've been in the church for any length of time, that concept makes you uncomfortable. What do you mean, Christ? Because literally what it says is that what is lacking, it's the deficiency. What's deficient in the suffering of Christ. And if you've been in the church a long time, you think, whoa, you know, red flags. Nothing is deficient in the sufferings of Christ. He did everything for us. Now, I'm going to back up and Go through that. In a certain sense, that's absolutely true. The Bible teaches pretty consistently, and Jesus says multiple occasions that what he did was meant to be a completion, that the story of the Bible is humanity separated from God, men and women who had lost their way from God, and that God came after them, sought them, sent his son to die for them, Jesus, and to pay for all of their sins, not some, not a few, not he would do part of it and we would do the rest of it. 
In fact, when he dies, the last word Jesus says, or next time, is, it is finished, done, completed everything. And so the, the, the Bible does teach consistently that Jesus accomplishes our salvation in the sense that he dies for all of our sins, not some of them, not a few of them. He's done it. And yet, Paul still says that his passion, his suffering, self-imposed suffering of moving into the lives of other people in some way makes up or completes the suffering of Christ. Now, before we go into what that means, I want to look at the next verse, which connects to it, and where it, it says this. I became a servant of the church according to the stewardship of God, given to me for you in order to complete the word of God. Again, what is this complete the word of God? Does this mean now we're going to add some new chapters? Everybody, pen, paper, let's start writing some new uh, books for the Bible. Let's add some new things. And I'm sure there's some new things we could come up with to say. We're going to complete the word of God. And, and it's a very, very explicit word. You know, that, that we're gonna, it's not full yet. We're going to bring it to fulfillment. Okay, so what do, what do those mean? This is what I think. Um, as opposed to what is, a, I think, a common methodology, which I and others do, which is you ignore those verses because they seem a little bit too complicated. I, I think it's rather simpler than that, which is, so why did Jesus die? What were his sufferings about, and why was the Bible written? Jesus died, his sufferings, his pressure, his affliction, was for the purpose of individual men and women being reconnected with God, finding redemption. Why was the Bible written? The Bible is the true story of God's pursuit of humanity. These things are not done. While Jesus has fully died for our sins and while the Bible has been written, the redemption of individual human beings is not yet complete and God's pursuit of individual human beings is not yet over. It's not done. And that's where, surprisingly, perhaps, you and I come in to complete what God intends to do in the world. We move on. Verse 26. It says, Paul explains them in order to complete the word of God. That is, the mystery that has been kept hidden from ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. Now, what is a mystery but... Think of a story. Think of a mystery as a, a, a story that's a mystery. The only thing that makes mystery mystery is there's something, there's an inkling that something is amiss. Right? That something's going on that has to be resolved, and you're, and you're trying to find the resolution for that thing. It's not a mystery if you don't have the unsettled sense of what, what's going on here, and, and, and where, where are we going to find an answer to this? Mysteries always start out with a question, but the question is driven by this resonant sense that something is off. You, you, if you've ever seen the movie Memento, how many of you have seen Memento? Memento, is a, it's got to be 15 years old now, maybe 10, maybe 8. Maybe one. How many? Is that all? It's more than that. Stand up so we can make fun of you. It's not four. Seven-ish. Has nothing to do with what I'm talking about. Sorry. So, Memento is the story of a guy who has extreme short-term memory loss, and it's a typical postmodern story where he, you're dropped in the midst. There's no backstory. You're dropped in. And so you wake up with this guy one day, and you have no idea why this is true, but he can't remember anything. And, and he wakes up every morning, and he looks at the tattoos that are all over his body. At first, you have no idea why he has tattoos. He has tattoos all over his body, and they are messages. 
And every day he wakes up and he doesn't know who he is or what he's about or what's going on. And he looks at his, ar- his body, his arms, and he sees all the tattoos and he remembers what he's about. He's about justice, about the pursuit of something that's been done wrong to his wife, right? And that drives him every day. That, and so the mystery is you're thinking, the mystery is what's that hidden thing that we're, we're wondering about? The mystery is who is it that has done this thing and how can he find him? Well, in, if, if, when a movie is seven years old, I'm going to spoil the plot. Just be aware of that. So here's the plot spoiler. That's not the mystery. Somebody had been manipulating him. Somebody who wanted him to do his bidding had been imp- mi- manipulating him, giving him false information. Every tattoo he saw, was, that was true. They weren't. They were not true. They were all lies intended to have him do something. Um, do something wrong, kill somebody for somebody else. I think we often miss the mystery. There's something within us, something within us that's searching. We know there's something going on, something bigger than us, something outside of us, but we often miss what that is. One of the books I, I recently finished is called The Moviegoer by Walker Percy. And in the midst of that book, he talks about the search. It's, it's a novel, but he talks about the search, that, that sense within him where he has to be on the search. He has to find something. He never reveals what it is. He just talks about the search. I think many of us feel that at different points in our life. And what we do is we suppress the search or we engage the search, but often we don't search for the right thing. We're searching. And like the guy looking at his arms, we think we're after the right mystery and we're not. We just know there's something amiss. What this passage says is the mystery has been revealed. What is it that is bigger than beyond us? It is this incredible truth that humanity has made for God and made for glory. Not simply that redemption is possible, but there is someone to be redeemed to. Not simply that we can be forgiven, but forgiveness is a path toward discovering the true beauty with an individual human beings were made for. And that that, that that something within us, that resonant sense that something is amiss is both that something is wrong and there's something very right that we need to find. The mystery is there's a truth of our connection with God and the story of the gospel is God's pursuit of us so that we can have that, own that, and live that out fully. As I've said throughout this series This is the power of hope. That what has been anchored in our soul is the truth. The real truth. The tangible, touchable truth. That God made us for himself and has brought us back. That can empower our lives. Crush apathy. Crush fear. Crush waywardness. Because there's something bigger and better. That's the power of hope. Where Paul goes on from that now is as we engage that power of hope for ourselves, it's intended to go elsewhere. And so he goes on, he says, God wanted to make known to them, to other people, the glorious riches of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. I I certainly have not read exhaustively on everyone who's ever translated or interpreted this passage but from my experience, uh, everybody that I've read has looked at that last phrase there, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, and has viewed that as the hope of glory for you. Christ in you is the hope of glory for you. 
I don't see it. The entire passage is about how we affect other people. Entire passage. Paul says, for them, the glorious riches are being revealed. Christ in you, the hope of glory, for them. Christ in you convinces people that they can have glory. I mean, the, the, somewhere between the scary and the <laughs> beautiful truth is that you are the picture of hope. We're the ones who present it. We're the ones who make it real, tangible, not something that's on a bulletin board. You see, what often happens is we take that verse, we pull it out, and we stick it on a wall. Christ in you, the hope of glory, and it sounds great. But the truth is what it's calling us to is a rather challenging way of life where we, we are the bearers of hope. People need to believe that there's hope. Without hope, our lives go south fast. People need to believe there's hope in you and I, whether God made a good decision or not, are the bearers of hope. The believability that someone can be free, that someone can find peace, that someone can live beyond what their world, their culture, and others have told them and know with certainty that they are loved and accepted and empowered and holy and beautiful. You are the hope of glory for somebody else. And to be absolutely brutally blunt, I'll just put it on me. I can either bring hope to people or steal it away. My words, my actions, how I carry through in things can either bring hope to people or can steal it away. But I have the power to bring hope. Back when I first became a Christian, which was right around when Memento was released, Back when I first became a Christian, and probably for the first 15 years, this is what I thought. You see, this message, whether you know it or not, is kind of about evangelism. It's kind of about telling other people that they can have a hope that's founded in Christ. For, for years, this is kind of what I thought. I mean, I, I don't know that I would have said it out loud this way, but this is what I thought. What that meant was I had a handy set of believability propositions. If A, then B, we'll see. Believe these things is all good. You're fine. Now, once you believe these things, I do have another set of things that you ought to do because good Christians do those things. And then one of those was to tell other people about my newfound relationship with Jesus. And in that, I somehow believed that what that meant was what I'm supposed to do is I'm only supposed to talk about the good parts of my life. This was true, but now look at me in hopes that they did not discover that that wasn't true. I don't get hope from a seven-foot person who can dunk. People don't get hope from a perfected view of you that isn't actually real. That's just discouraging or unbelievable. People find hope in an individual who's found a presence of God that's made them free. They don't get hope in duty. They may be led to duty, 
by the change within them. They don't get hope from rules. They get hope from the presence of God within you, which has made you free. I don't know. I've often wondered about God's plan. It seems a uh, sketchy proposition to put it in our hands. And yet I can't escape it in this passage. And it's probably the most specific of any passage in the Bible, honestly. You know, Christ's sufferings are not complete. You got to weigh in. Word of God is not complete. You got to weigh in. It's probably the most direct of any passage in the Bible. I don't know. I wonder, what was God thinking when he did that? You know what he was thinking? Doesn't matter if it's true. It matters if it's real. You are real. Real flesh and blood with flaws and foibles and eccentricities and an unmistakable glory. And we can change the world. And normally how we do it, really, is by just living life simply and honestly before God and let other people see the beauty of the hope that we found. Not with clever um, statistics or just with our own story. My encouragement to you is this. You were made for God. That mystery you sense deep beneath, the beauty that you've wondered about, it's true. It's real. The glory and the majesty you wonder about in your soul, it's true. It's you. Brokenness is real too. And that composite picture is the person that God loved and died for. Take great hope in that. You like you are are loved and beautiful. And you like you are can change the destiny of other people by being yourself connected to Christ, living before God. Today, as we go to communion, one of the things that Jesus did <clears throat> is he saw our, our need to hold on to things, that we tended to forget core things and get distracted. I mean, the, really, the waywardness of humanity is, each, each one of us, is, we, we move pretty quick, you know, off of, off of ground zero, square one. And so what God did is he kept reminding us of things. That's really, it's, in my opinion, that's the point of, of the, the certain rituals in the Bible. Even the point of what's gathered together every Sunday, it's like we get off center really fast. Let's come on back. Communion is one of those things. Come on back. Let's, let's, get, let's get back to square one. Square one is you are loved. Jesus Christ came to earth, really lived, really died, really rose from the dead. When you believe that, he enters within you and you have glory within you. You have the presence of God within you. And you now carry in this vessel the power to change other people's lives. And so he reminds us over and over again, come take communion again, remember. So as you come today, if you're somebody who is in a relationship with Jesus, which means, it doesn't, I don't, it doesn't mean you lived perfectly last night. You know, doesn't mean you got all the answers. Doesn't mean you know all the Bible. Doesn't mean you know how many books are on the Bible. You believe that Jesus died for you and loves you and you've received that and want to live in relationship with him. That's where you are. Then come and share communion with us, whether you're a part of warehouse or not. We, we invite you forward.
If you're somebody who's exploring and you know that when I talk about the search, you sense that within you and then something within you has resonated this morning and it said, aha, and if that's the case, probably God has been tapping on your life over and over again for months, perhaps years, and this morning you're going, well, that's actually, that's it. I'm, I'm ready. I want to have that relationship with God for which I was made. Come forth. Join us in communion. As we take it, bow your head and say, Jesus, I received your death for me and I want to live in relationship with you. But if you're here and you're not sure where you are, not geographically, if you're not sure what you believe, if you're still wondering, I would say don't take communion. And, and it's not that you'll break some rule. It's not that anything like that. But it's more that communion was intended to be a moment of transparency of us before God. And when we take moments like that and we turn them into, into worthless rituals, they, they tend to do some level, I think, of, of damage to our soul. They immune us to the real thing. And so I'd say you sit back in your seat and reflect and think about where you personally are and, 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 and ask God to, to lead you forward. But if you're, if you're ready to receive Jesus or you're in faith, then uh, please come and join, uh, join us at communion. I'm going to ask the uh, service to come forward, and I'm going to give you a couple of moments to think and pray, and I'll be back with you in just a moment. Hold on. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, as I in his name give it to you. And then the same way, after supper, he took a cup of wine, and he said, See this cup? This cup is the new covenant, the new agreement in my blood, which is shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink, all of you. Again, as I serve the communion service, you have a couple of moments to think, pray, and reflect. <laughs>